Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room Podcast. Firstly, happy Christmas to all of our listeners. Huge thank you for listening in this year and hearing some of the fantastic insights and advice we were lucky enough to get from some amazing guests yet again this year. So as a thank you and as a summary of some of the brilliant conversations we've had this year, we're finishing 2023 with a two-part selection box series containing some of the highlights from the year gone by. It's been a busy couple of years for HR teams everywhere, with the role of HR constantly changing and developing over time. And who better to discuss this with than Peter Cheese, CEO of CIPD, who we spoke to back in January. In this first clip, Peter speaks about how HR leaders can now take a hold of the seat at the top table in businesses. The number of conversations I've had, you know, going back a decade or more, where HR said, oh gosh, when do we get the seat at the table? And I've often said, you know, I think that in many ways the seat's always, always been there, but but sometimes, certainly historically, we would have to position or fight for it a bit more. We would have to be more confident in educating business leaders as to why the things that we care about in our profession are so fundamental to business. And I think that's been part of the shift. I think business leaders are far more alert to all of these very big questions and recognize how important it is to their business. And therefore, as I said, I think that proverbial seat is definitely there. I think the, the questions that remain then, of course, where we have to be a little bit honest with ourselves is, are we fully capable of taking that seat? Because a seat at an executive table means that you represent your function and you're bringing that expertise, but you have to be part of the wider business strategy and thinking. Um, and you've got to really show that the things that you care about in your functional business area, how they connect to overall business strategy and driving the business thinking collectively. And that also says, therefore, that other things we've wrestled with a little bit in the past about things like, have we got the right data? Have we got good insights that's coming from that? And do we, uh, in that proverbial statement, can we speak the language of business? And a lot of the language of business is actually about things like numbers. So have you got the numbers and the data and the insights? And as I said, and can you understand the business strategy and priorities? And therefore, the things that we talk about, we can express in those terms and not just what sometimes has come across as a little bit parochial HR stuff, um, which we haven't always been able to articulate as to just why this is so critical to your business going forth. So I think in, in with all of that said, I think it's, it is an exciting time. It's a very challenging time. Um, but I think we really are seeing a significant shift in business thinking that we need to be part of and help to encourage going forwards. And having that seat at the table and really fulfilling that role is part of that. Mm-hmm. I think a key part of that you've kind of alluded to there, Peter, as well as just having a seat at the table is fine, but having that voice at the table is really where we'll see the, the proper transformation in HR agenda, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And so then there's the old sort of title thing you talked about CHR. I'm seeing a lot more chief people officers now. I mean, we've, we've seen things like chief talent officers and things of that na- uh, nature, but even how we sort of brand ourselves has been part of the shift, I think, a little bit. And yeah, I, I 
worked a lot in Ireland, worked a lot internationally, I'm seeing this sort of titling is becoming quite an interesting thing as well as to try to illustrate the breadth of what we do and perhaps signal the shift from how people might have perceived this in the past. We were lucky enough to speak to another one of Ireland's leading HR influencers and success stories, Jenny Brown, Chief People Officer at Teamwork, about how she views the impact HR can make against the backdrop of her own role in helping Teamwork achieve the notable success they have in recent years. In this clip, Jenny explains the term organizational architecting and how she has used it in her career as a HR leader. I guess a lot of my work over the years has been around that. It's been around transformation and it's been around kind of you know, the organization is, is not a nebulous thing. We think of organization almost like a, a construct, an actual thing. But an organization is, is just a collection of its people um, wrapped together by mission, value and strategy. Um, um, and effectively, I think the role of um, the people leader that, you know, that from, a, from, a, from my perspective, I would see my role as facilitating to Liam's point, you know, the build of that architecture and the build of that organization. And like any, you know, if you think of, you know, room to improve, um, uh, we won't argue for Pagola, but, you know, it, essentially the role of architect is to come in with a sense of what, you know, gather gather the requirements, listen to the client, think about what's needed, understand some of the challenges that are there, understand the budget, so the constraints, and what is the desired outcome, so what success look like, and then bring all of that together with their own expertise and their own skills and experience and put together a plan that everybody can buy into and will understand the resourcing that's needed, understanding the timeline required and some and measures of success. Um, and I think that's essentially what my role is in any organization is to work with the organization to understand things that matter, understand um, some of the constraints that we have um, um, and understand, you know, and manage that expectation and align around that. Um, and to push, you know, the architect always pushes, right? They don't just take what they hear the first time. They challenge, they push back. You know, we talk a lot about the consultative, the trusted partner in a sales organization. And I think to some degree, the people leader, the people lead does that, that you know, the chief people officer, or head of people, their role is to consult in, to challenge, to go. But really, is that are we are we thinking about this in the right way? Is this really actually the problem that we have? Um, and is this indeed the, the the best thing we can do? Could we not do something different or more? Maybe we're not pushing ourselves enough. Maybe we need to push ourselves more. And who do we need to bring in? Who are our key stakeholders? How do we actually do this? So, and that's a challenge because not a lot of organizations just don't think about that role in that way. And so that's a piece of translation and work. And I would never claim to be in a role where I've actually do that fully the way anybody would like it to be done. But I think that's essentially what the role is, is to organizationally architect. We are here to bring it all together, bring what we know, bring our expertise around people, around organization, around change, around, you know, the new operating model for the world of work. What does that look like? And thinking about it from, as a business strategy not a people strategy. I think some too many times we talk about the people strategy as if it's, well, we'll get to that later, but actually it is a business conversation. It's just we're using our people to deliver the business and without them, we wouldn't be in business at all. It's also been a year where HR teams and organizations had to keep on top of the evolving needs of their people. 
And the two aspects of this that we heard most about this year were financial well-being and mental health anxiety. Um, so numerous studies and surveys listed financial stress and cost of living at the top of the list of people's worries in the workplace at the start of the year. So on this, we spoke to Paul Merriman of Ask Paul, who shared some insights on the effect this can have on companies if not dealt with or supported. And it can, it can massively, it's going to expect, like it's going to affect their sleep, it's going to affect their physical health, their relationships at home, their productivity and work, just their overall mental health. So it's going to affect absolutely everything. Um, and it's not a nice place to be. I mean, if anyone's ever been under even a little bit of financial pressure for a week or two or missing something, it, it could just make a massive impact on their life. So yeah, it, it goes through nearly all parts. I mean, the biggest part, there's loads of different surveys. You mentioned the LAIA survey as well, the Wellbeing Index. Uh, I remember looking at the PwC Employee Financial Wellness Survey where they, uh, they looked at employees themselves and they found out that uh, from a productivity point of view, six more likely to say they were financially stressed have severe uh, or majorly impact, uh, majorly impact on their productivity at work. So that's you now 41% of people saying that, you know, so it's, it's, it's a big of uh, course. Um, and then people retention is a big issue here where people will move for a very small amount of money uh, when, you know, from a tax point of view or a work ethic point of view, like as they might have to work harder for an extra five grand uh, when after taxes, two and a half grand, maybe, you know, 200 quid a month or 50 quid a week, they could probably with a financial planner have saved that 50 euro per week so without moving a job. And uh, we've also seen people do mad stuff in the past where they've left employers that have, you know, five or eight percent employer company pension plan and moved to an employer with no company pension plan because they didn't realize that that eight percent was probably worth three or four hundred thousand to them in their pension plan in the future because they've never seen a financial plan they never know it they never they never visualize what that looked like when they get to when they get to 60 or 65 years of age um so yeah it can just lead to really really silly mistakes uh, but the main the main issue employers should have on this is number one is the productivity of their employees you have somebody that's financially stressed they're going to be spending more time panicking and worried and flat out on their bank in 365 or whatever banking app they're using trying to make sure they're paying their bills and making sure they have money. Um, but the big thing I think they should really worry about is the retention. If they move for an extra five or 10 grand to another employer, the cost of replacing that employee is going to be far more worse than getting them educated on financial planning. You know, so it really makes sense from a, from a, from an, from a, an investment point of view, having your, helping your employees be more financially aware I think is number one, probably the most affordable thing an employer can do or minimal from a cost point of view. Mental health and anxiety were also unfortunately high on the list this year, with many HR teams finding it challenging to tackle this for their employees. Recently, we spoke to Sinead Prose, Head of Wellbeing at Leia Healthcare, who spoke to us about this, the difference between stress and anxiety, and most importantly, what we can do to help. From a health perspective, there's a big difference between being stressed and being anxious, right? And they're not to be bucketed in the same bucket. This is what I understand from our, our clinical uh, partners at Cognitive Health. We're very, very clear saying, you know, stress can be a good thing, right? It gets you out of bed in the morning. It gets you putting on clothes that make you feel good. You know, oh, you've got to be in work by a certain time. It motivates you and you mo it mobilizes you into action. That's good. And sometimes a little bit more stress actually enhances your performance, right? So it's really important when you're looking at people for your organization that they actually match your culture. So if you're in a high performing, high paced, dynamic environment, which is the environment I love to work in, you, you can almost question people for that. You can you can stratify people for that in the recruitment process. You can ask those questions, which I think is really, really important. Um, Intense anxiety is something very, very different. That's 
that's a medical concern, right? As a manager, you're not trained to deal with that. But what you can do is have the training to understand what the triggers are and how to identify it, right? Or how, no, not identify, how to recognize it. Let's be really clear here how to recognize it in the workplace. And once you've had that training, then it's understanding, well, how do I signpost to, is it occupational health? Is it 24-7 mental well-being support? Or is even 24-7 mental well-being support really not this? Because this seems to be going on for quite a while. It might not be early intervention. So how do I signpost this person who I know is not themselves, who I know is disengaged, who is definitely not um, acting in the way that I'm used to seeing them act? And this is where really, I would say, Lay Healthcare has developed in partnership with an awful lot of its corporate clients, those kind of health supports for the workplace, which is really, really important. So I think just being able to understand that, having the education around that and getting the signposting, really, really critical. Liam, we were even talking last week when we tried to get on this podcast and the technology mm -hmm. failed us and now we're here again, right? Um, that conflict management piece, you know, people not feeling that they can have those difficult conversations. And I think when you're when you're face to face with somebody or in person, you just have to eyeball somebody and you have to have those conversations. It'll come out naturally. When you are dealing with people through computers, there's a there's automatically a barrier, there's automatically a screen, and there's more hesitation to do it. And it's more difficult to do it. Like I know I've been in those situations where I've had to have some of those conversations with some of my team. And I hate, and I, I always tell my children, don't use that word hate, but I hate having those conversations through a computer i might i say like, let's let's meet up for a coffee and it's not always bad sometimes it's really constructive criticism that they need to hear for feedback whatever and i need to get it myself but it's better to do that in person and i just think those that that's difficult so i think there's a piece there in terms of understanding it own realizing what it is if it's intense anxiety it's not stress yeah it's it's really being able to to have that have that training recognize the triggers and then be able to signpost into the um, into the right, whatever it is, trainings or, or healthcare services that are available. One thing that has been a common thread throughout all of our discussions this year, however, is HR's role in supporting people. Whether it's driving culture and transparency through initiatives or developing clear, well thought out and embedded policies, HR teams are making an impact. When we spoke to Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid, she spoke about how through the lens of domestic violence in particular, employers can provide the support needed and make an impact in even situations as serious as this. Having a comprehensive, well understood uh, domestic violence policy in place in a workplace is an absolute win-win for employers and employees alike. It is, you know, it is such good news uh, for companies when they put in place these policies, the feedback they get from their staff in terms of how their staff feel cared for, in terms of uh, EDI, um, the awareness and the empowerment that it gives to um, uh, individual employees because policies uh, would also include information on referral pathways, for example. And um, we know that uh, somebody is more likely to disclose in the first instance to appear in work as opposed to perhaps perhaps their manager. Um, and that gives them a tool to be able to say, well, look, I can't necessarily fix this, but did you know there's this national helpline? Did you know there's the Women's Aid helpline? Did you know there's the male advice line? Um, so, uh, and and uh, we also know that it contributes to staff retention um, and uh, it, it pivots the employer from sometimes being the completely unknowing and unwitting additional pressure point 
in someone's life if they are being subjected to coercive and controlling abuse, um, where actually very commonly uh, economic abuse can be part of that experience of what's being done to them. They may be being encouraged uh, or pressured to give up work or they're Performance may be suffering as a direct consequence of the abuse, um, but they haven't actually disclosed to their employer. And so some some women will leave work um, and they will leave feeling that uh, they can't ask for a reference because they feel that their performance was suffering. Their employer never knows that this wasn't something that it was their fault. So putting in place a policy that creates an invitation, a context, um, an assurance of a process for disclosure um, can absolutely transform the role of the employer there because sometimes this is something that somebody needs for a short period of time in their life. They may not even need the paid leave component, but they may benefit from uh, somebody understanding that maybe they need to change their internal work line because they're being stalked or harassed by their current or former partner or flexible work times because they're being monitored and, you know, so that they can start. So very practical things can be brought into play as well. Um, and then the pay- paid leave piece is really crucial because what that offers is a mechanism for somebody to take opportunities under the cover of work uh, where their partner may know where they are and you know uh, coercion and control and monitoring are very very common factors in abusive relationships so if they think well my partner's at work um, but they actually are afforded that time off to maybe go to court to uh, apply for an application or to come and visit a specialist domestic violence uh, service like our own or perhaps to view a property because they are trying to find an alternative uh, accommodation. So as part of their strategy to leave, um, you know, that is absolutely crucial. Um, and what we know in terms of employer concerns about costs and things like that is that actually the smaller proportion of those who may be subjected to abuse in the workplace will take up the leave. But for those who do, it's absolutely life changing. And they are often those who are at the highest risk um, because of the levels of control they're under. In a similar conversation, but on another topic, we spoke to Tracy Gunn, co-founder at Platform 55, who spoke about what we can do to support parents and families what some employers are doing to lead the way here, and you guessed it, how to effectively support employees by what you do, and most importantly, how you do it. Awareness is the, is the first key, and I, I'm very heartened by the fact that so many organisations are now, you know, waking up to the fact that actually you can take care of business by taking care of people. And we see, we're seeing the supports there for fertility and miscarriage and menopause and surrogacy and and that's that's fabulous but of course it can't just be a launch and leave and great tick we've done that next because we know it takes so much longer to to embed that so thinking about who who's doing it well well, this is it's a bit like asking me to choose a favorite child one I have to be really careful in what I say here okay but there are a few (laughs) there are a few that that spring out for for different reasons and I'll kind of elaborate um on that um one a company that really stands out for me is is Ornua. Um, Ornua were a really early adopter and really got what we were trying to do when we launched Platform 55 back in, in June 21. And they very, very quickly came on board because they could see the value. And what I really admire about what Ornua are doing is they are really, um, really implementing policies throughout their numerous sites that they work from but they're just going about and doing it very quietly because they know when they believe it's the right thing to do they're not doing it to kind of you know for to, 
you know, to, to, to create a good PR story. They're doing it because they fundamentally believe in that. And I think that really you can see that being translated in their company results, which kind of speak for themselves. Um, Irish Life, they're also really, um, you know, pushing things forward in their Life Matters series. And they're doing some great work there again around their policies and being really forward thinking. AXA too, in fact, AXA coined a lovely phrase because uh, they were saying, look, we don't just want to launch and leave our policies. We want to launch and love them. So they're really taking on board, Mary, that point you've said around how do we make sure these become part of the fabric of how they, how we work and not just another policy that we have in place. And then the, the final company that I'll mention uh, here is Kerry Group, actually. And to your point, Mary, that you mentioned there about somebody maybe working on a building site might be very different to a professional services firm. One of the things I really admire about Kerry, who we also work with, is they were very keen to make sure that supports were accessible to everybody, even those who worked on the manufacturing sites and who maybe didn't have English as a first language. So they really encouraged us to make some of the services we provide available in six different European languages and Irish Sign Language. So that accessibility was there. And I really admire that approach so that it's not just office-based staff that can benefit from these, these things, but that, that everybody can um, as well. So I think that's been, been fabulous to see. But I think it does, um, one thing, sorry, as just as you were talking there, Marion, it was making me think that, yeah, the policies are great, but it's when you've got, I guess, that psychological safety that if you want to share that with your manager, you can. So if you want to share that you're breastfeeding or that you're undergoing fertility treatment, many people choose not to share, and that's fine. That's a very personal choice. But again, one of the things that we're seeing is that we do have to work that little bit harder in the hybrid world to create that environment. Um, so a lot of the work we do is around managers saying, well, how do you get that in the workplace? And you get psychological safety by showing some vulnerability, by showing some of the challenges that you're having. So again, I think for me, that's where the policies really come to life is when managers feel that they can have those sorts of conversations with the teams and individuals that they lead. A great note to end our first selection box on there. So thank you again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for our selection box part two. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. We'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the clips we've featured in this week's episode and also in next week's episode. If you are enjoying these episodes, do please feel free to share them with colleagues, friends and family. And even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate it. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at InsideHR.ie. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.